So the big idea introduced yesterday was that of a quantum amplitude, a complex number whose mod square gives you the probability for the outcome of some experiment, some measurement. And we introduced the concept of a complete set of amplitude, quantum amplitudes so that if you knew um, these many, all the amplitudes in a complete set, then you could calculate uh, the amplitudes for any experiment that you might, you might conceive, any measurement that you might make. And I made the point that quantum mechanics is all about going from the amplitudes in some complete set to calculating these other amplitudes for the outcomes of other experiments. So, um, this is, there, is a, there is a very powerful analogy here between... Uh, so, our knowledge of the state, of the dynamical state of our system is encapsulated in the values taken by these complete sets of amplitudes. So it's some series, it's some set of complex numbers. And there's a very good analogy here between the way that we identify points in space and the coordinates of vectors. So we can use many different coordinate systems and many sets of complete numbers to identify one and the same point in space. So points in space are a primitive notion and the sets of three numbers we use to identify them depend on, on preference. And, and you might use, there are many coordinate systems, we might use many different Cartesian coordinate systems, we might use polar coordinates we have. And the coordinates we use to identify a given point depend on the problem we're trying to solve. Maybe most efficient to use spherical coordinates, maybe most efficient to use a particular Cartesian coordinate system, whatever. So we want, and, and we find it very useful to have the concept of a, of a position vector. <coughs> R, which we understand to be um, x, y, z, it's a set of three numbers. But it's more than a set of three numbers, it's really an equivalence class of sets of three numbers. Because every different coordinate system would have a different set of three numbers all at the same point. So Dirac introduced the concept uh, of a ket of psi. So this symbol uh, effectively characterizes the. Um, this symbol stands for the, the state of our system, the dynamical state of our system. And you can think of it, it symbolically stands for. Uh, a1, comma, two, comma, a3, comma, a4, comma, dot, 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 right? So we don't know how many quantum amplitudes we need in order to characterize our system, so it just goes dot, dot, dot. But the power of the notation is, is the power that we get from position vectors. Instead of writing all this, if we write all this stuff down, then we are committing ourselves to a particular coordinate, to a particular coordinate system, if you like, to a complete, particular set of complete amplitudes. Whereas what we really want to do is focus on the dynamical state of our system. This is the dynamical state of our system. We, we, might, we might find it convenient to use uh, the amplitudes to find the different possible energies. We might find it convenient to use instead the amplitudes for the different, different possible measurements of the momentum or the position or whatever, we leave that flexible by using, by using, um, excuse me, there we are, by using this symbol said ket, and of course that is, sorry, that is the back end of bracket, we will have bras in a moment. 
Okay, now we know what it is we can, if we have got two kets. Um, supposing this stands for, this is another dynamical state of the system, and let it be defined, let it be in, in some particular system, let it be these numbers, B1, B2, B3, etc. Then, because we know what it is to add amplitudes, indeed we know we're under orders to add amplitudes when something can happen by two different routes, it makes sense to define the object. We know what this object is. It is A1 plus B1, comma, A2 plus B2, 2, comma, and so on. So if you add two kets, that's, that says the dynamical state of the system, which is described by the amplitude, the first amplitude being the sum of the amplitudes from the individual bits, the second amplitude being the sum of the amplitudes, the second amplitudes for the individual bits, and so on, right? So just as you add two vectors, if you add two vectors, uh, you add the x components and you add the y components and you add the z components to make a, a new set of three numbers. That's what we do with kets. So we know how to add um, kets now, and we also know what it is to multiply uh, kets. We can define a new ket, psi primed, being, which we write like this, alpha of psi with is just some complex number. We define this to be the, the ket alpha a1, comma, alpha a2, comma, and so on. In other words, if you multiply a ket by some complex number alpha, what you mean is the dynamical state of the system that you would have, which has amplitudes... Uh, alpha times the original alpha amplitude in every slot. So we know how to add these things and how to multiply these things by complex numbers. It follows that kets form a vector space. So you, I guess you've, been, you've encountered this idea with, in Professor Hessler's uh, lectures, right, that the elements of a vector space are, for a mathematician, they are nothing but objects which you can add and objects you can multiply by numbers, either real numbers or complex numbers at your discretion. So that kets form part of a vector space, we'll call this vector space big V. You, from those lectures, I hope, know that what you get... F no, let, let's... let's, let's uh, yeah. In those lectures, I hope you, you've met the idea of a basis. A set of basis kets. What is a set of basis kets? It's a set of objects, I, woo, like this, which is such that any ket can be written as a linear combination to whatever you need. Uh, it's a set of kets such that any ket... For example, the dynamical state of our system can be written as a linear combination of these kets, right? Then we have the idea of an adjoint space. I hope I'm just reminding you of stuff that you've already met. Um, so um, if we consider the linear, we are going to be very interested in the linear complex-valued complex-valued functions on kets. A mathematician would say on V, functions on, on the elements of V. Um, so 
And you might imagine traditionally you would, you would, you would say, okay, f of a psi is a complex number. The complex number in question is going to be the amplitude. The reason why we care about these functions is because they're going, these complex numbers are going to be the all-important amplitudes for something to happen, for something to be measured, right? And that's, you know, we're completely focused. The whole, all this mathematical apparatus is only there to help us to calculate these amplitudes because if we can calculate amplitudes, we can take the mod square and we then have a prediction for what some experiment is going to... Uh, a probabilistic prediction for what some experiment is going to, is, is going to yield. Okay, so, so we're interested in these complex-valued functions. I'm just, I'm just saying that they're going to turn out to be the amplitudes. I'm not establishing that at this point. Um, and we, the thing is, we don't actually use this notation. The notation we use is this. But these mean the same thing. Uh, Bracket opening, sort of angular bracket opening this way, f of psi. This thing here means the function f evaluated on a psi means that it is a complex number. It is going to be interpreted as an amplitude for something to happen. And this gives us the idea of saying that f, which, so this thing is a function, a linear complex valued function, is called the bra, um, the bra f. So we've got kets, which define dynamical states of our system, and we've got bras, which are functions on the dynamical states of the system, which extract the all-important amplitudes. The kets form a vector space. Because it's a vector space, it must have bases, like that up there. And the bras also form a vector space, as I hope you've discovered in in Professor Esler's lectures. Um, so the bras form the adjoint space. Often called V-primed. Why do they form a vector space? Because I know what it is to add two bras. If, I, uh, given, if you give me a bra F and a bra G... I can form a new bra, let's call it H for originality, uh, right? What, what, in, order to, in order to give meaning to this, I need to know what H does, what H does to any state of psi. I want to know a function is defined by the value it takes on any, ob, on any possible argument. So I need to know what H of psi is, what number that is. And I define it to be F of psi plus g of psi, which, of course, is a perfectly well-defined expression because this is a complex number, this is a complex number, and we all know how to add complex numbers. So this is the definition of the, function of the, of the bra h. So I know what it is to add two functions, and, of course, I know what it is also to multiply a function by some constant thing. So I define the ket g primed, uh, meaning alpha g, uh, by the rule... G primed of a psi is alpha G of a psi. Okay, so again, this is perfectly well defined because um, that's just a complex number, and so uh, this multiplication is well defined. So now I know what G primed, what value it takes in every psi. 
So this is so this is the point that this is this is the basic principle that establishes that the functions, the linear complex-valued functions on a vector space, form a vector space, the adjoint space. And we're going to be working extensively with both the KETs and the BRAS. The only other thing that we need to remind ourselves is that the dimension of the adjoint space is equal to the dimension of the space itself. Uh, and so if we... And, and how, do we, how do we define this? We have a correspond... Well, we prove... So, so if we're given a basis of kets i, for each one of these we define a, a bra, and we do it as follows. We say that um, the bra j is the object, is the function on the, on the kets such that this complex number, j i, is equal to delta i j. So, in other words, it's nothing if, if J, the label J, is not equal to the label I, and it's one if the J will, label J is equal to the, la the label I. Right? So, so this, this, this equation defines J, the bra J. The func so, that we're saying that, that for example, uh, two... The function 2, belonging to the second ket in our basis, is defined, this is a function, and it's defined such that 2 on 2 is 1, and 2 on anything else equals naught. So that is a perfectly good rule which defines the value that the function j takes on every element of the basis, and again from Professor Esler's lectures, I hope you're aware and can show that if you know what a function takes in every element of the basis, a linear function takes in every element of the basis, you know what it takes in every ket whatsoever. So there's one final thing that we want to do in this abstract area. We want to say, supposing that psi is equal to the sum ai uh, of, of... So we take a state of our system, and we have it as a linear combination of the basis states then we define a function. This is the funny part, right? So, so far, I, hope, I think everything's been, I hope everything's been fairly straightforward. But now I'm saying associated with the state of our system, I want to define a function on states. And the function in question is defined by this rule, that it's AI complex conjugate times I, the bra I. So, given that my state of my system is a certain linear combination of the basis states, I'm saying that the function associated with that state of the system is a certain linear combination of the functions, these functions which are associated with the basis states. Why do we do that? One reason we do that is in order that we can evaluate this important number, psi psi. So, let's have a look at that number. That is the sum, I, I write this out as a sum ai star i, summed over i, and then I have to write the, this one out as a sum aj of j. So I'm summing over j. These are just dummy labels, right? So I'm entitled to call one j and one i. 
So it's a sum over j is 1 to however many we need, and i is 1 to however many we need. Um, this, is a, this is a linear function, right? We're evaluating this linear function on this dirty great sum, but because it's a linear function, the dirty great sum can be taken outside, so I can write this as the sum of i and now j, being 1 to whatever it is, of a i star a j of i j. There I've used the linearity of the function i. And now I use the fact that this is by definition of this function delta i j, so it is nothing unless i equals j. So now let's do the sum over j, for example. As I do the sum over j, uh, I will get nothing here except for that particular j, which is equal to i, and then this will come, become 1. So this becomes the sum of ai star ai. In other words, it becomes the sum, sum of ai mod squared, which now, that's just mathematics, now we're back to physics. This is an amplitude uh, to find, this, is, this, should be a, this should be an amplitude ai, a quantum amplitude, uh, and we're taking a sum of the mod squares of the amplitudes, so this is the sum of the product, sorry, of the probabilities, so that should be 1, because the probabilities should all add up to 1. So my, my states, I would like my states to have this normalization condition. This is proper normalization. is that any, the state times its bra should come to 1, not any other complex number, that particular complex number, 1. Okay, so that's, that's the basic principles of direct notation. And now let's just talk about the energy. Let's, let's have a look at this better understanding of what this physically means by having a look at the energy representation. So supposing we... In certain circumstances, for example, if you've got a particle that moves in one dimension, then it's, uh, then it's possible in some, in some trapped in some well, then it is possible to, to characterize the dynamical state of this system simply by giving the amplitude to measure the possible values of the energy. So a complete set... So, so this is... This is not always the case, but for a one-dimensional uh, particle, a particle trapped. This is a very idealized situation, but never mind. Trapped in a one-dimensional potential well. I'm, we will see that, and I'm asserting for the moment that... Um, the AI form a complete set of amplitudes. Where AI mod squared is the probability of measuring the ith energy. The ith allowed energy, right? So the energy, in this case, when we have our particle trapped inside a potential well, has a discrete spectrum. Remember, we introduced the idea of a spectrum. Those are the possible values of your measurement. You can only measure a, a discrete set of numbers. They're called EI. 
there's a probability that if I would measure the energy, I would find the energy to be EI, that that's this mod square, and a complete characterization of the system, complete dynamical information is provided by knowing not only these probabilities, but actually the amplitudes themselves. So you can think of a psi as a vector formed by these amplitudes. Now, let's, let's write that a psi, the state of our system, is equal, let's, let's be given some basis, and let's write that it's equal to ai i, summed over i. So out of these complex numbers, which we know, and some basis, any basis, let, uh, we, can, we can write a symbol like this. That's just a repeat of what we've already done. And now let's ask ourselves, what are the meaning, what's the physical meaning of these states? These are, this is expressing my actual state of the system as a linear combination of some states of the system that we've conjured out of nowhere. Right? But each one of these is, according to our formalism, corresponds to a complete set of amplitudes. It's, it's a state of the system. Now let's find out what these ones mean in this context. Suppose we know the energy is actually E3. So that implies that a3 is 1, and Ai equals naught for I not equal to 3. So supposing we happen to know that the energy is E3, then, then the amplitudes must be like this. And um, what, is the, what does that mean? That means that psi, the state of our system, is actually equal to 3, because on this, in this sum, there's only going to be one non-vanishing term, and that will be A3, namely 1, times 3. So that tells us that this state 3 is actually the state of definitely being, having energy E3, and similarly for every, all the other ones. So a better notation, or a, or a clearer notation is, to, write, to rewrite that in a clearer notation as a psi is the sum i of a i times e i. This, this makes it clear what we've just established, that the thing i is actually the quantum state of definitely being having energy e i. So we've discovered the physical meaning of those abstract basis vectors when, we, when these are the amplitudes to measure the different energies. And this is called the energy representation, right? This is the energy representation. This is when we express the state of our system as a linear combination of states of well-defined energy. This representation is, um, is, plays an enormously important role in quantum mechanics because it's how we... It's by going to this representation, for, for mathematical reasons, going to this representation is how we solve the time evolution equation as we solve the quantum analogues of Newton's laws of motion. It's also, as we will find, a very, uh, a very abstract representation in the sense that, and this may surprise you, 
no physical system ever has well-defined energy. So these quantum states are, in fact, unrealizable in the real world. So this expresses a realizable state of affairs as a linear combination of states that you can never actually find anything in. But it's, it's of enormous technical and mathematical importance. Let's talk now about something, and we'll, 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 we'll come back to the energy representation uh, later on. But now let's move straight on to another illustration, uh, which is back to spin a half. So I said that elementary particles are these tiny gyros, that the, the, the rate at which they spin never changes, but the direction in which the spin is oriented does change. I made the point yesterday that the though you can know um, for certain the result of measuring the spin in one particular direction, for example, the component of the spin parallel to the z-axis, um, you cannot know the direction in which the thing is spinning because even when you've measured the component parallel to the z-axis with precision, you, you're, you're in deep ignorance about the, uh, about the value of the spin parallel to the x-axis or the y-axis. You only know it does have spin in those directions, but you do not know the sign of this. You do not know how much spin is along x or along y. Um, but a complete... So, so, for s... So, if we measure the spin along the z-axis, and I'm going to say that this is now plus or minus a, ha a half... Now, yesterday I had an h-bar here in some sense. I was using a slightly different notation, but I had an h-bar there. Um, I want to... The angular momentum h-bar has dimensions of angular momentum. So the angular momentum, what this means is that the, if, if sz is plus a half, that means the angular momentum in the z-direction is plus a half h-bar. But it turns out to be convenient to leave off the h-bar when talking about the so-called spin uh, of SZ, partly because you'll see that spin in quantum mechanics is really has a slightly dimensionless uh, being, and partly because, in, partly because um, writing, we don't want to write any more H-bars than we have to. It's just, you know, it's just economical. So, that, so physically, there's a, the, the angular momentum is a half H-bar, but it's more convenient to write that SZ, this abstract... Thing, the spin is plus a half or minus a half. So what do we have? We have two states. We have a, we have a complete set of states. Formed by plus and minus. Okay, so this is the state in which I'm certain if I measure the spin parallel to the uh, z-axis that I'm going to get the value of half. And this is the the one where I'm certain to get minus a half. And the statement that's a complete set is to say that any state of my electron or whatever could be written as A plus, plus, actually maybe it's better to write it this way, A minus, minus, plus, A plus, plus. So since this is a nice easy case, there are only two components uh, to our ket, A minus and A plus, and just in just the same way that I might, in ordinary, in ordinary vectors, write that R is equal to, is it, or the vector A, let's say, or B, perhaps it's better, B 
is equal to bx uh, ex plus by ey plus bz ez. Don't need a bracket, do I? No. Where here I've got three real numbers, bx, by, and bz, which are the components of b in some particular coordinate system. So here I'm saying the state of our electron could be written as a linear combination of this basis vector and this basis vector. So these kind of map across here. But this is a simpler case insofar as I've only got two components, a minus and a plus, rather than three components. So that's the analogy. Okay. Now we need to anticipate a formula. So what I, what I claimed was earlier was that if you know what a minus and a plus is are, what those amplitudes are to find the spin in the z direction, either up or down, then you can calculate the amplitude to find the spin in any other direction, either parallel to that direction or anti-parallel to that direction. Okay? That's what I claimed. And now I'm going to quote a result uh, which, which we will 